Hello friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today we're going to have Dr. Charles Jackson back on the podcast, aka Dr. J, and we're going to be talking about junk DNA today. What is it? How is it used as an argument against uh, creationism? And uh, well, why it really can't be used as an argument against creationism, but rather an argument for a designer, a very intelligent designer, God. And so again, this is Dr. J or Dr. Charles Jackson of creationtruth.com. Dr. J, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here. So uh, friends, tonight we're going to be talking about junk DNA uh, Dr. J, what is junk DNA, and, and why is this often used as an argument against uh, uh, creationism? Well, just like junk organs were once used as an argument in favor of evolution and against God's design, the designer's obviously incompetent if he gave us all these organs that don't do anything, but the myth was, was that these organs didn't do anything. Since we figured, since we're so smart, and we couldn't figure out what the organs were doing, then they must not be doing anything. And, of course, this was arrogant and um, sort of uh, myopic. It made us miss the mark. It, it was a bad, bad blind spot. And then history repeated itself once we found out all these organs really did have purposes and functions during our lifespans. Then they did the exact same thing once they found a new realm in biology where there was a lot that was unknown, and they just annexed that and said that these unknown things are really proof of evolution. And uh, uh, Dr. Gary Parker once said that evolution thrives in the uncertainties, and he was right. Uh, they just pick up on things that we don't know enough about, and then, then later, when we find out the rest of the story, uh, it, it is something that's completely not useful to evolution or actually condemning of evolution. Right. Uh, I think I remember reading in uh, Dr. Jerry Bergman's book, uh, he referred to it as disteleology, uh, an idea that basically if, if they don't know what an organ or something does, uh, they try to use that as an argument for God's imperfect design and therefore an argument against God. Oh my, you have been reading up on this. <laughs> well, I try, I try, but I do find the subject a little bit intimidating because there's just, boy, it gets so technical. It gets so technical. So um, this junk DNA, suppose, okay, we, from what I understand, there are, uh, in our genetics, there are coding segments that code for proteins and then there's everything else. And I guess the coding segments are only about 5% of our entire uh, DNA. Then 95% is this non-coding that is often referred to as junk DNA. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Actually, for the longest time, it was just 2% that we knew what it was doing. The reason that we knew what it was doing for so long um, was that um, these were the genes in our chromosomes, in the nucleus of our cells, these were the genes that had the DNA that was coding to make proteins. And since they actually made something, you could kind of trace it back. You could trace all these proteins back 
to the gene on whatever chromosome uh, that actually had to code the recipe for making that protein. But the rest of the DNA, we, we couldn't find what it was doing because it wasn't making protein. So it didn't kind of like leave a, a retraceable trail. Right, right. So I guess as I was reading about this, I almost got this image in my mind of, okay, so there's, there's the, the, the coding segments that make proteins, and that would be almost like analogous to uh, the raw materials that you would use to build a building. So like your bricks, your mortar, your, your steel, your aluminum frames, the drywall, the copper wiring, all these things. So you've got all the building materials, the proteins, but without instructions, specific instructions on how to put it together, the timing of putting it together, um, you really don't have a whole lot. And, and it sounds like that's where the rest of this alleged junk DNA comes in. It, it's kind of like we, when we didn't know as much um, and we couldn't figure out as much, it was easier to conjure up ideas that were wrong. Like before we knew more about the movements of the sun, the moon, and the stars, it really did look like the sun goes around us. I mean, from the Earth, it actually looks that way. Uh, but when we, we really got into the observations, even before telescopes were used, uh, we, we realized that um, it, that wasn't what was true. We had to look at it a lot more carefully, get a whole lot more information, but then it, it became really clear that the, the Earth goes around the sun and we're one of the planets that do that. Well, the same thing with the junk DNA. I mean, it's not just the building materials that the proteins are, but every hormone in your body is a protein. Every enzyme in your body is a protein. You know, lactase, which digests lactose, milk sugar, if people are lactase deficient, uh, that is a protein. It's an enzyme that digests milk sugar, but uh, it is a protein too. So there are many other uh, growth hormones and things. Not only are proteins the building materials for your body, by and large, but other protein molecules conduct the events of building your body and maintaining all of your tissues. So there are a lot of different forms of proteins um, in, in the body, but uh, it's weird that we could trace all these things back and only figure out what 2% of the DNA was doing. We just figured the rest, well, the only truth was the rest, we just didn't know what it was doing. The assumption was made, since we can't figure out what it's doing, it must not be doing anything. And immediately, <laughs> like with the junk organs, the vestigial organs, the evolutionists jumped on this and said, well, this is just old leftover DNA from back in the day when we were fish and worms and rats, and uh, we don't use that fish, worm, and rat DNA anymore. Some of it we do, but most of it we don't. And it's just clutter in the attic from past lives we once had. And so they just wove this intricate story about it, truly knowing zero about what they were saying, weaving a beautiful evolutionary tale exactly the way they did about the vestigial organs, and they made the exact same mental blunder. Now, I could say mistake or error, but doing it, the, doing it again, 
just shows how blindly evolutionary believing scientists will charge full speed ahead towards something that, that if you had been thinking about it while you were going in that direction, you'd realize it was just about as stupid a thing you could possibly do and say, especially in the light that you'd made the exact same mistake a few generations before and ended up looking bad and being very, very bad for your reputation, very, very bad for your theory that you uh, that's beloved. And I, I just cannot believe the drive to, I'm sorry, to just do insipid things. And, and they, they keep it up. And so here they're doing it again with the junk DNA, and they did it for 40 years. Of course, all the time creationists were saying, God doesn't make junk. Uh, these organs have functions. We just don't know what they are yet. We found them all. And then we all said that God doesn't make junk. This DNA is is being transcribed. It's being converted into other forms. The 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 chromosomes are taking the the energy to copies of all this DNA in every cell of your body, and then pass it down to the next generation. If it's really useless. Even if there was no God, certainly evolution wouldn't waste time and energy and resources on something as uh, as meaningless as that, just like God wouldn't. But because it was so powerful uh, and they, they found it to be so convincing to students to say that this was leftovers from our evolutionary past, they just wouldn't let go of it. And they never bothered to scrutinize it uh, like we did because, of course, we went from the position, the biblical worldview in science, that, uh, that these created things were designed, and therefore there's a designer, and you designed them that way uh, with, with a rhyme or reason in mind, uh, not blindly. So our, bibli- our biblical science worldview was actually far superior at predicting the truth. And uh, their worldview, the evolutionary secular worldview on the DNA was actually what what caused uh, a very, very powerful blind spot. And, and they couldn't even let their minds go in the direction of what it turned out to be the truth. So in other words, uh, it sounds like just like in the case of vestigial organs, this theory of junk DNA actually hindered scientific progress. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if, if we had actually given any credit to this to these DNA sequences as having any value or purpose or function, we'd have figured out about uh, uh, the, the, the amazing differences between chimp brains and human brains. Uh, we'd have figured out that gene activity was far more important in many uh, instances like brain development uh, than was what the gene actually said uh, because there are other genes that don't actually make proteins, but they are the ones telling all the other genes that do make proteins when to make the proteins, how much to make the proteins, how, how in what, what quantities, and how long to be active, and what time in your life you're going to need those proteins, what time of the day you're going to need these proteins. It's how all of this gene activity in producing these proteins was coordinated was actually found to be uh, centrally located in the junk DNA. The junk DNA was actually the nerve center 
the command center, the, the secret to the coordination of the activity of all the other genes, well, all the 2% of them. And so it's really the disk operating system of your protein manufacturing. Hmm. Okay, and so uh, do, other than just we don't know what it does, therefore it must be junk, do they have any other arguments? Before we look into what's actually happening and, and, and destroy this idea of junk DNA, is there anything else they grapple with to try and uh, show that it is, in fact, junk? Well, the biggest proof they had was evolution just shows us. You see, evolution predicts that there would be a bunch of junk in there. And so we just saw that they had a double check on this system, that well, evolution says it should be there, and there it is, not doing anything, just like evolution says it should. And so they just kind of, uh, as we might say, rob Peter to pay Paul, or um, they actually, it's a circular argument, but they just repeated it so much, the mantra that to them, the greatest proof that it was junk is that evolution is true, and so, you know, get with it, everybody else, or we know what we're talking about. So they just have this, this tautology, this, this circular argument that, uh, you know, look, it has it, it, this junk DNA has uh, predictability as far as, it, you know, we pre evolution predicted that there would be junk. Hey, look, there's junk, therefore this must be true, and it is true. Yeah, it's it's very very dogmatic. Okay, so tell me about Encode, the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, the the Encode project. Well, there were a lot of different scientists all around the world working on that. Um, uh, Eric Lerner was one of them. I uh, worked at MIT and Harvard. He worked on the uh, Chimp Genome Project. Uh, this is something a little separate from the Human Genome Project, but the ENCODE Project was looking not just at, at, uh, at listing the genome, but finding out how it, how it works. And not only the junk DNA myth being dispelled by their work, but they also found out that uh, the way that the, the genes, the way that the DNA is actually encoded um, is far more complex than we thought. We used to think that one gene got read from the beginning of the gene to the end of the gene, and that made that protein, and that's the end of the story. Now we realize many of the genes, if you read them backwards, they also make a protein that you need. And if you just read part of it and then read part of another gene and then splice them together, that will make another protein that you need. And, uh, and John Sanford's work in his book, uh, um, what his, his work, but then his reporting and talking about it in his book, uh, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, he was suggesting that there were, there were codes nested within codes, nested within codes, nested within codes, kind of like that Da Vinci Code book talked <laughs> about how the Bible had secret messages of who was going to be president every year and stuff like that. Uh, they, they tried going every certain number of letters in the Bible, and they claimed it was spelling out these things. I, I don't really know that much about that, so I can't comment on that. But the, the genetic code, not only if you just went every uh, nucleotide uh, base uh, in, in order, but maybe went ev a certain number, every like every fifth one or something, that one would also spell out the code for a useful protein. Uh, and... 
Uh, most people know that the DNA molecule is a double helix. It's like a, a, twist, a twisted rubber ladder. It's that shape. And the two spirals, like two snakes wrapped around each other. And the, in between them are the, uh, like the steps in a ladder, and that's where the code is in every one of those steps. Uh, but the, we always thought that there was just one strand of the DNA that's wrapped around the other one, and that that one strand is where the real important message is. So we called that the code, the uh, sense strand, and the other one, the anti-sense strand. Well, now we find out the anti-sense strand also, all its information is being used too. So we just blew the lid off how simple we thought the whole system was. It's a, it's a hitherto for not understood yet complex network of uh, lane and overlaying codes that uh, overlap each other. Um, in many cases, seg segments from from a dozen genes, from a dozen different chromosomes, somehow all coordinate with each other to make uh, a, one protein. It's it's an incredible uh, accessing system, uh, more sophisticated than any of our computer systems that we've got, uh, uh, CDs or or uh, thumb drives or anything like that. That so that was one of the big things the Encode project came up with was it was way more complex and networked than we'd ever imagined. And they never mentioned this, but if you tweak a system that's so fine-tuned already, the only thing you're really going to do is mess it up. Uh, you, you change one thing, and you know, 200 other things could all be messed up. Now there's backup systems, there are repair systems, there are things that can compensate, but as we've over the generations, gotten more and more mutations in our DNA. Uh, these systems are obviously not working as well um, ever since Adam and Eve, of course. And uh, so the, the fact that these, this whole thing is so complicated and that evolution depends on accidentally changing the system and having a bunch of lucky accidents so that copying errors in the DNA can change a bacterial cell into a, a fish, and that fish can change into a, a rat or a possum, and that possum can change into people. I mean, this is, it was already astronomically far-fetched to believe accidents, billions of accidents could actually change bacteria into people. Well, now that we find out how intricate and well-tuned and networked the system of our DNA is, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to actually explain how um, unscientific that kind of thinking is in light of the data we now have. It, it seemed like a good idea back in Darwin's day before we even knew what chromosomes were. Um, and it, it seemed like it could still be okay back in the 1950s when we believed one gene, one trait, and the very simplistic uh, ideas, uh, things that were, were brought about by by many ingenious people in the past, but uh, now, now we found out it was it's a hundred times, a thousand times more complicated than we thought. The system accidentally being tweaked throughout the generations, getting better, uh, it is, is, again, it's, it's hard to find a word for it. Um, I just don't understand why 
now that we know so much, some people's brains could stay so frozen in a, uh, a disproved genetic idea like the evolutionary view of looking at DNA. I, I, well, I kind of ranted, but I hope that's what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, one book I was reading says that we have somewhere around 25,000 uh, human protein coding genes but on record, uh, in public databases, there are currently about 2.5 million human protein sequences. In other words, we've got the genes to code for 20, about 25,000, but yet there's 2.5 million different proteins, human proteins. And so what's happening is God has created like the perfect code that allows for um, – there's no extra information. There's not, uh, how do I say this? Uh, it's as if the Lord has put it in place where uh, certain proteins, it'll take some of that code and splice it to other code in order to make certain proteins. Most of the proteins come from uh, splicing code. Th yeah, does that yeah that's, that's the only way you can get so many proteins from only these 22,000 genes. But, of course, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's just stellar, the mind that conceived this kind of a system. It's like uh, merging thousands of tiny files, merging files together to make a book, and then, then merging the same files together in different order to make a different book. But, but these files are set. Uh, they can... But, but they can be read forward, backwards, and get different information, and then coordinate that system uh, to create whatever you basically want. So duck DNA is actually what makes it possible for us to get millions of proteins out of only a couple, well, really, uh, 22,000 uh, coding genes. They are really being, uh, we're getting our nickel out of these genes because they're being <laughs> utilized by, a, by a, a, a brilliant, ingenious system that is in place that, uh, that coordinates using segments of each of these and putting them back together again in different ways. Uh, it's, it's unimaginable, but it, we found out it was true. Uh, I'm sorry, Eric Lander, not Eric Lerner. Eric Lander said all the new data that came in, and we're talking uh, in the year 2007, the year 2012, he said, it just blows my mind. And, uh, and of course, it blew everyone's minds. But what's been a little overlooked is that creationists have been saying that there wasn't junk DNA all this time, uh, that when they discovered there's no such thing as junk DNA, and there never has been, they said, no one predicted that this would be the case, which really actually infuriated me because we've been saying it for 40 years, and then they had the gall to to say that all this time no one had predicted what we had predicted, what they had ridiculed us for predicted, predicting what they had mocked us for predicting. I had two professors mocking me at a, a, a college where I was teaching uh, back in the 1996 for saying that junk DNA, someday we'd find a purpose for it. Uh, and then to say no one predicted when they, they knew we predicted it. And so, you know, it's... They're, they might try to hide from everybody and even from themselves that the creation model was uh, 
years, generations ahead of them in, in, in predicting the nature of the genome, but the, the fact still remains we were. Our, our biblical worldview, our, our deistic, theistic worldview against the atheistic worldview um, had us on course, and they were off wandering in the wilderness. Uh, only when more facts came in were, were they able to let go of the junk DNA idea, and they act like, acted like they were brilliant for finding this out. We had already told them this is what was going to happen. <laughs> right. So uh, I guess I, another analogy, I'm not sure if this is going to work very well, but um, you, you brought up the Da Vinci Code, and I think you were making reference to like what some people teach is the Bible Code, which I've never done a podcast on because I, I feel like there's so much hokiness that goes on in that area that it's really hard to tell what is legit and what isn't without actually vetting it myself. Um, but, but the concept, all right, just get the concept um, I've heard it said, and again, I've never vetted this out, but that something along the lines of the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, if you go every 49th letter and you grab that letter and go 49 letters, grab that letter, uh, it all the way through Genesis, I've heard that it spells Torah over and over and over. Um, Deuteronomy, uh, numbers in Deuteronomy I've heard that if you do that same thing, it spells Torah backwards, almost like arrows pointing in. And then I heard that Leviticus, every seven letters, you grab that letter and it says Yahweh. Now, again, I've never vetted that out, but let's just imagine that was true for a second. You basically, you've got the, the overarching theme of the Bible. You've got everything that the first five books of the Bible say, but then you've almost got this little sub-message that's hidden in the text that through what is referred to as, uh, I think it's equal distance letter sequencing or something like that, they're able to find other messages. It, I know it's, it's actually really borderlining on uh, mysticism uh, and, and uh, really Kabbalah, which is Jewish witchcraft. But um, I'm just saying the concept, that concept, if you were to add to the Bible or take away from the Bible in any of those er areas, it completely screws up the message. And so likewise, this DNA code is so complex, so jam-packed with information, uh, and is able to produce um, so much from actually relatively short code by splicing different portions together, uh, transposable elements. I want to ask you about that here in a few minutes. Um, you, you really can't mix up any of those uh, any of those genes before you start having complete chaos and things don't work. Yeah, well, you have to remember the, the it's an article of Christian faith that the author of the Bible is God, not men. And right. so the same author that wrote the Bible wrote this this uh, DNA uh, arrangement, the DNA code, and all of the information that's encoded in it for every living thing on the earth. And so it's, it wouldn't be surprising to me. I'm not an authority on on uh, the Bible code or anything like that. I've heard of many right. things like that. Uh, the Jewish letters, uh, Hebrew letters, uh, are, are numbers. The numbers are letters, and you can get an, uh, a, a number for the letters and add up the, the and they always add up to a multiple of seven, uh, 49, you know, seven times seven. 
And and those are all fascinating things to me. I'm I'm not yeah. studied that, but um, I I wouldn't be surprised if it was that uh, message within a message within a message within a message, just sure. like the DNA is. Um, it, it still comes from a, a mind uh, whose whose ways are higher than our ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I I, I might mention that Richard Dawkins. Uh, probably the most high-profile atheist in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. He said that if there was a God, if there was a God, this God would have to be so far above us that merely trying to conceptualize him would be sheer madness. I agree with Richard Dawkins on that, and just these kind of evidences of what kind of of a mind we're dealing with when we're talking about the mind of God. It's it's just so enormously complex, sophisticated, brilliant, and all you can do is stand in awe at the genome and, and at the Bible. Mm, amen. I also read about transposable elements. Um, what do you know about that? Or or jumping genes? They're also referred as. Well, the during. Um, during replication and during the functioning of the DNA throughout throughout the life of a cell, um, there are parts of the DNA that that can be lifted out of the strand, turned backwards, and put right back in again. And it really doesn't affect the gene to do this. It's it's still it's like taking the train uh, out of a train, taking one of the cars out, turning it backwards, and linking it back in. With the other cars again, uh, it might be going backwards, but it's doing everything that it used to do, and there's no real problem with it. And and these things, there are certain parts, certain junctures along the DNA sequence where this is more li- liable to happen, just because the well, for lack of a better word, the little little hitches are more uh, jumpable and uh, and can can unhitch. And then, and then go back in backwards like that. Um, viruses can do things like that to DNA sequences, but um, it's it, we can look at these transposons, these transposable elements, transposed sections in the, in the DNA of, of living people, and uh, it's just like any other thing that kind of marks it, uh, you can kind of trace the ancestry. Uh, of us through the streams of civilization, as uh, uh, one uh, Christian-based uh, history book went, and, and trace it all back to the Middle East and and to the cradle of civilization and all. But uh, these these things are interesting. Um, they're they're something a creationist and an evolutionist would both find fascinating with how the DNA works. But it doesn't normally come down on on either camp's side as proof that they're right. Evolutionists try to annex it, uh, but they they try to annex uh, anything that's neutral as saying since evolution, if evolution was true, this would happen, and since it happened, evolution is true. Well, there's, there's you know, 50 other ways that could happen without evolution ever being true, and they, they never tell the public that. I, I hope I kind of got to the, the thing you were hoping I'd get to. <laughs> so, uh, didn't ENCODE get shut down because um, the ENCODE project didn't get shut down because they were giving results that didn't quite fit with the paradigm that uh, uh, they wanted? 
Well, gee, I never heard that. I I, I read all the uh, the results that were coming out in 2012 um, in some of the journals and in the popular uh, reporting of the journals, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and you know things that were reported from Nature magazine and all that. Um, I didn't actually hear that Encode was shut down because it was uh, all the findings were uh, alarming uh, many evolutionists to thinking this was bringing out their their soft underbelly. Uh, I do know that uh, Mark Armitage out at uh, you know, where was it Cal State he uh, he found uh, soft material in a Triceratops horn. And that didn't look good for evolution, so they fired him. It was a discovery. He was fired for discovering something, a fact, an observation. And uh, but because it was an embarrassment uh, to the evolutionists, and they were already very a uh, 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 little rubbed raw about the T-Rex blood found uh, by Mary H. Schweitzer. Back in 2006, well, it's it's just uh, 2005. They, they just retired to that, so they didn't want to hear any about the discoveries. Hmm. I didn't I didn't realize that Encode had suffered a similar uh, prejudice as Mark Armitage had. I, I I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, I believe I, I downloaded a bunch of podcasts on junk DNA uh, today and listened to him while I was at work, and uh, I'm pretty sure I remember hearing um, uh, the uh, ID the Future podcast. One of them mentioned that it was shut down because uh, their findings were not supporting the evolutionary junk DNA paradigm, Uh, and so they defunded it, and it just kind of fell apart. Well, my one comment is, too late. (laughs) It's already... (laughs) It's already been done, and and they they just concluded there's no junk DNA. There never was. All this time we talked about it, we were talking about something that wasn't real. And and yeah, the embarrassing part, which I didn't see in much of any of the literature, was that uh, they said it with such certainty, with such firmness and conviction, and and uh, making the connection that it just shows how superior uh, evolutionary thinking is in science. You see this all fits together so beautifully. But they really were only arguing from the position of non-knowledge. And they were annexing non-knowledge. And it ruined everything when we actually learned about these things they were talking about. I, I should think they should be embarrassed and humbled and maybe I'll take a second look at, at the paradigm, the whole evolutionary way of thinking about science. Hmm. Uh, another thing I wanted to hear about is uh, pseudogenes. What are those, and how does this fit into this whole junk DNA argument? Well, my pretty much understanding on pseudogenes is these are, are things that look like a gene that might have been active in the past, and and they're not. Now, the most famous one is the vitamin C gene that humans carry. Now, it, it's a, actually a gene that isn't doing anything now. Maybe it broke down from a mutation generations ago. Maybe before Noah got on the ark. And so, and maybe everyone on the ark carried the pseudogene. Now, 
It looks a lot like the same gene in other mammals that actually manufactures vitamin C. Uh, the only mammals that don't manufacture vitamin C are, are primates, you know, and fruit bats. Now, uh, monkeys and people and fruit bats eat fruit, so they don't really need to make a lot of vitamin C. I mean, God even told Adam and Eve, eat the fruit. It's going to be your food. So humans and, and monkeys and fruit bats, pretty much fruit is a large part of the diet, and uh, and so we don't need to. Uh, uh, we don't need to manufacture vitamin C, but dogs and wolves and, and bears and mice, they they all make their own vitamin C. Now, they have a gene for doing that that functions. We can find it, and it works. And we have a stretch in our DNA that looks a lot like that, but it's a little different. So evolutionists have tried to say, well, it was a gene for vitamin C making, and it got mutated and broken, and now it doesn't work. Now, it could be uh, that it was some other kind of gene, and it just randomly changed into something else, or it just could be a broken gene that looks like the vitamin C gene. They really do not know what it used to look like, uh, but they're looking for things like this, uh, guided by the evolutionary paradigm. I'm not saying pseudogenes are in support of evolution any more um, than, than any of other things. They try to say support evolution that are, that are just observations. So a pseudogene, at least in my understanding of it, is something that it doesn't really work, uh, but it looks a lot like a gene in some other living thing that does work, so we just make the assumption that it used to be that, and now it's broken, and we still have it. But the fact of the matter is, if we've been sitting around having evolved from monkeys six million years ago, and that pseudogene broke that long ago or longer ago, it should have drifted way further from looking like the vitamin C gene than even this because it would be completely neutral to natural selection. And so uh, any mutations that occurred would actually uh, stick and, uh, and, and copying errors, no matter what they were, would, uh, would be permanent and, and it wouldn't affect the organism at all and wouldn't kill off any organisms. Um, it, you'd think... That, that it wouldn't be as nice and tidy a story as, as the evolutionary paradigm gives to the concept of pseudogenes. That's, um, it's, 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 not, it's not meaningless. Um, uh, it's, not a, it's, it's probably more meaningful in the argument between evolution and creation than transposons are, um, but it's way less meaningful than the junk DNA uh, error the evolutionists have made. Okay. So what, what, what do you think the bottom line take-home message here is as far as junk DNA is concerned? Well, um, you had said to me before you'd hoped that we'd stick with things that, that uh, the, the lay people could understand easily. And I think the easiest to understand layperson message is guiding your science by evolution is going to lead you the wrong way. The evolutionists aren't wrong about everything, but, but when it comes to Darwin's processes of, say, turning monkeys or bacteria into monkeys, uh, when you're guided by those thinkings, you might accidentally 
stumble onto the right things, but surely not because of your evolutionary theories. As a matter of fact, your evolutionary theory, because it's wrong, will lead you the wrong way. Only by luck are you going to get the right way, not by, de not by design, not by because you're thinking correctly. So the big take-home lesson is evolutionary thinking ends up with wrong conclusions that the reality, real science, later finds out that the trust they put in this theory to guide them is hugely misplaced trust. Evolution is not a smart theory. It doesn't guide you into the truth. And this should be a, 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 a smack of cold water in the face to them, but it's not. Because this is their religion. It is not their science. It's where they get their idea about how the whole world has meaning or doesn't have meaning and how they justify uh, their own uh, um, view of life and how to do life how to do science, how to either do religion or condemn religion, and, and it's a, it's, it is a religion. It's a, evolution isn't a science at all, um, and for it to, it's a superstition. That, you know, I've never put it that way, but evolution and evolutionary thinking is totally fraught with superstitious ways of doing science, superstitious ways of making supposedly wise commentary on what it means to be human and why we're here and things like this. It, it's, uh, it's, not, it's worse than religious. It's, it's superstitious. So the big thing that, that lay people can take from this is evolutionary thinking has guided scientists in the wrong direction over and over and over and over again, but they just don't get it and they just won't give up on it because they're extremely faithful in this religious belief. Now, there some of the uh, the less, uh, the more technical ideas um, is that the, this vast networking in the DNA just shows more and more uh, evidence of not just design, but vast, uh, unimaginable design that we've only only scratched the surface on. Uh, literally, God only knows how much intricacy we're going to discover if we continue looking into the DNA. Um, so that's a little bit more technical, but the take-home lesson is that the truth will set you free, and mm. the truth we found out through scientific research has uh, should have set evolutionists free from evolution, but it certainly sets creationists free from that mocking. They're not going to do it anymore. They're going to deny they ever did it, but we all lived through it for 30 or 40 years. And they're just going to say, you know, what we meant to do, you know, we knew uh, that we never were that serious about this. And trying to save face uh, is, is what evolutionists have to do uh, several times every decade. And it's getting worse for them. So no wonder they're often very mean-spirited. It's because they're, they're really, really embarrassed. Mm. Uh would you suggest it, you know, if any of my listeners want to dig deeper here and uh, learn more about junk DNA, is there any books you would suggest they read? There's not a whole lot that's, uh, that's written on it. Um, you're not going to find anything in high school or college textbooks saying uh, anything bad about junk DNA. It'll take 
at least 10 years before the textbook started admitting that it isn't proof of evolution. And hmm. teachers, especially high school teachers, because the college professors have to give it up first, and they train the high school teachers. Many, many teachers are teaching these kinds of things because they trusted their teachers and professors. But the professors have got to change it now. Uh, now the truth is known. As far as uh, what you could read, um, there are some good books in the creationist literature uh, that, are, that are for the lay people. Uh, written on the high school uh, reading level would be Gary Parker's book, Creation, Facts of Life. Uh, it, it explains a, a lot about how DNA actually works and why the creationary paradigm is a lot uh, better at uh, explaining this than the evolutionary paradigm, which runs into a lot of uh, uh, tangled knots and messes along the way. Uh, also, as I mentioned, John Sanford's book, uh, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, uh, addresses more the idea of mutations and neutral mutations and how the accumulation of these mutations that natural selection just can't weed out fast enough will gradually cause any species to go extinct a lot sooner than how long evolutionists think species have existed on this planet. Um, let's see. If you really want to get into a technical, technical about DNA and creation science, um, you could read Walter Remine's book, The Biotic Message. It's a big, thick book, kind of expensive and, and technical, but it really... Uh, brings out the personification of God in our DNA. It, it's almost like uh, God is just shouting, I'm the one behind all of this, when you look at, <laughs> at what Walter Remind called the biotic message. A little simpler uh, thing on, on DNA uh, that puts it forth is the German creationist, Bernard Gitt, uh, wrote the book, In the Beginning Was Information. And this is a lot more uh, straightforward about information science and how the fact that DNA does contain real information on how to build a living thing uh, just just throws in the face of any atheist or anyone who who wants to say that there's no no sign that there's design. Uh, that that's also a shorter book, easier to read, um, and also shows that Bill Nye was lying when he said that uh, uh, creation science is merely an American phenomenon. Bill Nye mm. knew when he said that that it was a lie, and he said it on Big Talk. And then what did he do? He went and debated an Australian creationist. Uh, another book that I keep running into as I was studying up for today um, is a book by Jonathan Wells, uh, The Myth of Junk DNA. It looks like it's written on somewhat of a... Um, semi-technical level, but something that uh, many people will understand, and uh, it's actually fairly well-priced on Amazon, so that, that's another one I'd like to mention. Oh, yeah, and it, uh, if Wells wrote it, yeah, that would be, I haven't seen that one, I, I think I have heard of it, now I mentioned it, uh, what year did he write that, do you know? Uh, May 31st, 2011. 2011, well, he would have, he wouldn't have had the, uh, uh, the media explosion in the scientific world of, of there is no junk DNA, but all of the underpinnings were in place in 2005 and 2007. So, yeah, he would have, uh, he would have enough to make an extremely good case. And, and if that's short and easy to read, 
uh, some of his other things, like Icons of Evolution. I think he wrote that one. Uh, that would be good for lay people, yes. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. Um, more of an old Earth position, if I remember right, but but still very fun. Well, well yes, he's more well-known as being in the intelligent design movement. Uh, yeah. But, hey, the intelligent design people are correct. Uh, and and you, you take it nine yards further, you know, the rest of the nine yards, and uh, and you're uh, you're in the biblical creation camp. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's it's a nice gateway into uh, young earth creationism, and uh, but it, it you know it gets you it gives you a place to start, and I appreciate the movement. Um, I really do. It's just uh, it's oh, a yeah, they, to start, they so. gave us our second day in court. Is what they did for us, and and it did help open the eyes of a lot of people. Yep. All right, so your website, um, creationtruth.com, uh, correct? Uh, yes, yes. I work for uh, Creation Truth Foundation. There's a website, uh, uh, as you mentioned, and also a Facebook page of the name Creation Truth Foundation. And uh, didn't you have your own blog as well? Did, did you want me to mention that as well? Well, um, I have a blog page at thecreationtruth.com, and it's got a lot of very useful short essays on topics that you might be interested in. Um, more now, I'm, I'm video blogging at the Facebook page for Creation Truth Foundation. Okay, so yeah, friends, go ahead and look that up. Go on to Facebook and, and look for Creation Truth Foundation. And, and uh, yeah, I've, I've watched many of your videos, Dr. J, and they are fantastic. Very good. So. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. The little video blogs are only a couple minutes each, but uh, also there you can find the uh, uh, you know hour-long video uh, DVDs that are you know you can view them online for free. Uh, Dr. Sharp, uh, Dr. Uh, G. Thomas Sharp, who's the president and founder uh, of Creation Truth Foundation. Also, his videos are there too. Excellent. Uh, so, all right. Well, Dr. J, thanks for coming on the podcast tonight and, and talking to us. Okay, and, and thank you for having me, Michael, and God bless you. All right, so there you have it. Dr. Charles Jackson, uh, friends, if you'd like to learn more about what Dr. J is doing, uh, creationtruth.com. That's creationtruth.com. Thanks for listening. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.